Section forty seven of English Literature by William J. Long. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter ten continued. John Keats, seventeen ninety five, eighteen twenty one. Keats was not only the last, but also the most perfect of the Romanticists while scott was merely telling stories and wordsworth reforming poetry or upholding the moral law and shelley advocating impossible reforms and byron voicing his own egoism and the political discontent of the times keats lived apart from men and from all political measures worshipping beauty like a devotee perfectly content to write what was in his heart or to reflect some splendor of the natural world as he saw or dreamed it to be he had moreover the novel idea that poetry exists for its own sake and suffers loss by being devoted to philosophy or politics or indeed to any cause however great or small as he says in lamia do not all charms fly at the mere touch of cold philosophy there was an awful rainbow once in heaven we know her woof her texture she is given in the dull catalogue of common things philosophy will clip an angel's wings conquer all mysteries by rule and line empty the haunted air and nomad mine unweave a rainbow as it erewhile made the tender personed lamia melt into a shade partly because of this high ideal of poetry partly because he studied and unconsciously imitated the greek classics and the best works of the elizabethans keats's last little volume of poetry is unequalled by the work of any of his contemporaries when we remember that all his work was published in three short years from eighteen seventeen to eighteen twenty and that he died when only twenty-five years old we must judge him to be the most promising figure of the early nineteenth century and one of the most remarkable in the history of literature life keats's life of devotion to beauty and to poetry is all the more remarkable in view of his lowly origin he was the son of a hostler and stable-keeper and was born in the stable of the swan and hoop inn london in seventeen ninety five one has only to read the rough stable scenes from our first novelists or even from dickens to understand how little there was in such an atmosphere to develop poetic gifts before keats was fifteen years old both parents died and he was placed with his brothers and sisters in charge of guardians their first act seems to have been to take keats from school at enfield and to bind him as an apprentice to a surgeon at edmonton for five years he served his apprenticeship and for two years more he was surgeon's helper in the hospitals but though skilful enough to win approval he disliked his work and his thoughts were on other things the other day during a lecture he said to a friend there came a sunbeam into the room and with it a whole troop of creatures floating in the ray i was off with them to oberon and fairyland a copy of spencer's fairy queen which had been given him by charles cowden clark 
was the prime cause of his abstraction he abandoned his profession in eighteen seventeen and early in the same year published his first volume of poems it was modest enough in spirit as was also his second volume endymion eighteen eighteen but that did not prevent brutal attacks upon the author and his work by the self-constituted critics of blackwood's magazine and the quarterly it is often alleged that the poet's spirit and ambition were broken by these attacks note this idea is supported by shelley's poem adonais and by byron's parody against the reviewers beginning who killed john keats i say the quarterly End of note. but keats was a man of strong character and instead of quarrelling with his reviewers or being crushed by their criticism he went quietly to work with the idea of producing poetry that should live for ever as matthew arnold says keats had flint and iron in him and in his next volume he accomplished his own purpose and silenced unfriendly criticism for the three years during which keats wrote his poetry he lived chiefly in london and in hampstead but wandered at times over england and scotland living for brief spaces in the isle of wight in devonshire and in the lake district seeking to recover his own health and especially to restore that of his brother his illness began with a severe cold but soon developed into consumption and added to this sorrow was another his love for fanny braun to whom he was engaged but whom he could not marry on account of his poverty and growing illness when we remember all this personal grief and the harsh criticism of literary men the last small volume lamia isabella the eve of st agnes and other poems eighteen twenty is most significant as showing not only keats's wonderful poetic gifts but also his beautiful and indomitable spirit shelley struck by the beauty and promise of hyperion sent a generous invitation to the author to come to pisa and live with him but keats refused having little sympathy with shelley's revolt against society the invitation had this effect however that it turned keats thoughts to italy whither he soon went in the effort to save his life he settled in rome with his friend severn the artist but died soon after his arrival in february eighteen twenty one his grave in the protestant cemetery at rome is still an object of pilgrimage to thousands of tourists for among all our poets there is hardly another whose heroic life and tragic death have so appealed to the hearts of poets and young enthusiasts the work of keats none but the master shall praise us and none but the master shall blame might well be written on the fly-leaf of every volume of keats poetry for never was there a poet more devoted to his ideal entirely independent of success or failure in strong contrast with his contemporary byron who professed to despise the art that made him famous keats lived for poetry alone and as lowell pointed out a virtue went out of him into everything he wrote in all his work we have the impression of this intense loyalty to his art 
we have the impression also of a profound dissatisfaction that the deed falls so far short of the splendid dream thus after reading chapman's translation of homer he writes much have i travelled in the realms of gold and many goodly states and kingdoms seen round many western islands have i been which bards in fealty to apollo hold oft of one wide expanse had i been told that deep-browed homer ruled as his domain yet did i never breathe its pure serene till i heard chapman speak out loud and bold then felt i like some watcher of the skies when a new planet swims into his ken or like stout cortez when with eagle eyes he stared at the pacific and all his men looked at each other with a wild surmise silent upon a peak in darien in this striking sonnet we have a suggestion of keats's high ideal and of his sadness because of his own ignorance when he published his first little volume of poems in eighteen seventeen he knew no greek yet greek literature absorbed and fascinated him as he saw its broken and imperfect reflection in an english translation like shakespeare who also was but poorly educated in the schools he had a marvellous faculty of discerning the real spirit of the classics a faculty denied to many great scholars and to most of the classic writers of the preceding century and so he set himself to the task of reflecting in modern english the spirit of the old greeks the imperfect results of this attempt are seen in his next volume endymion which is the story of a young shepherd beloved by a moon goddess the poem begins with the striking lines a thing of beauty is a joy for ever its loveliness increases it will never pass into nothingness but still will keep a bower quiet for us and a sleep full of sweet dreams and health and quiet breathing which well illustrate the spirit of keats's later work with its perfect finish and melody it has many quotable lines and passages and its hymn to pan should be read in connection with wordsworth's famous sonnet beginning the world is too much with us the poem gives splendid promise but as a whole it is rather chaotic with too much ornament and too little design like a modern house that keats felt this defect strongly is evident from his modest preface wherein he speaks of endymion not as a deed accomplished but only as an unsuccessful attempt to suggest the underlying beauty of greek mythology lamia and other poems keats's third and last volume lamia isabella the eve of st agnes and other poems eighteen twenty is the one with which the reader should begin his acquaintance with this master of english verse it has only two subjects greek mythology and medieval romance hyperion is a magnificent fragment suggesting the first arch of a cathedral that was never finished its theme is the overthrow of the titans by the young sun-god apollo realizing his own immaturity and lack of knowledge keats laid aside this work 
and only the pleadings of his publisher induced him to print the fragment with its completed poems throughout this last volume and especially in hyperion the influence of milton is apparent while spencer is more frequently suggested in reading endymion of the longer poems in the volume lamia is the most suggestive it is the story of a beautiful enchantress who turns from a serpent into a glorious woman and fills every human sense with delight until as a result of the foolish philosophy of old apollonius she vanishes forever from her lover's sight the eve of st agnes the most perfect of keats's medieval poems is not a story after the manner of the metrical romances but rather a vivid painting of a romantic mood such as comes to all men at times to glorify a workaday world like all the work of keats and shelley it has an element of unreality and when we read at the end and they are gone ay ages long ago these lovers fled away into the storm it is as if we were waking from a dream which is the only possible ending to all of keats greek and medieval fancies we are to remember however that no beautiful thing though it be intangible as a dream can enter a man's life and leave him quite the same afterwards keats's own word is here suggestive the imagination he said may be likened to adam's dream he awoke and found it true it is by his short poems that keats is known to the majority of present-day readers among these exquisite shorter poems we mention only the four odes on a grecian urn to a nightingale to autumn and to psyche these are like an invitation to a feast one who reads them will hardly be satisfied until he knows more of such delightful poetry those who study only the ode to a nightingale might find four things a love of sensuous beauty a touch of pessimism a purely pagan conception of nature and a strong individualism which are characteristic of this last of the romantic poets as wordsworth's work is too often marred by the moralizer and byron's by the demagogue and shelley's by the reformer so keats's work suffers by the opposite extreme of aloofness from every human interest so much so that he is often accused of being indifferent to humanity his work is also criticized as being too effeminate for ordinary readers three things should be remembered in this connection first that keats sought to express beauty for its own sake that beauty is as essential to normal humanity as is government or law and that the higher man climbs in civilization the more imperative becomes his need of beauty as a reward for his labors second that keats's letters are as much an indication of the man as is his poetry and in his letters with their human sympathy their eager interest in social problems their humor and their keen insight into life there is no trace of effeminacy but rather every indication of a strong and noble manhood 
the third thing to remember is that all keats's work was done in three or four years with small preparation and that dying at twenty-five he left us a body of poetry which will always be one of our most cherished possessions he is often compared with the marvelous boy chatterton whom he greatly admired and to whose memory he dedicated his endymion but though both died young chatterton was but a child while keats was in all respects a man it is idle to prophesy what he might have done had he been granted a tennyson's long life and scholarly training at twenty-five his work was as mature as was tennyson's at fifty though the maturity suggests the too rapid growth of a tropical plant which under the warm rains and the flood of sunlight leaps into life grows blooms in a day and dies as we have stated keats's work was bitterly and unjustly condemned by the critics of his day he belonged to what was derisively called the cockney school of poetry of which leigh hunt was chief and proctor and beddoes were fellow workmen not even from wordsworth and byron who were ready enough to recommend far less gifted writers did keats receive the slightest encouragement like young lochinvar he rode all unarmed and he rode all alone shelley with his sincerity and generosity was the first to recognize this young genius and in his noble adonais written alas like most of our tributes when the subject of our praise is dead he spoke the first true word of appreciation and placed keats where he unquestionably belongs among our greatest poets the fame denied him in his sad life was granted freely after his death most fitly does he close the list of poets of the romantic revival because in many respects he was the best workman of them all he seems to have studied words more carefully than did his contemporaries and so his poetic expression or the harmony of word and thought is generally more perfect than theirs more than any other he lived for poetry as the noblest of the arts more than any other he emphasized beauty because to him as shown by his grecian urn beauty and truth were one and inseparable and he enriched the whole romantic movement by adding to its interest in common life the spirit rather than the letter of the classics and of elizabethan poetry for these reasons keats is like spencer a poet's poet his work profoundly influenced tennyson and indeed most of the poets of the present era End of section forty seven